Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. summer worship series, which means that each week we will explore some of these unrealistic expectations that people have for Christians and their origins. Where did they come from? Because sometimes there are expectations that are scriptural or that have come through the tradition of a certain denomination. And we understand that that is what God is asking for us as particular practitioners of the denomination. (coughs) But sometimes there are things that are thrust upon us from outside of our church perceptions and stereotypes, unrealistic expectations that society has for us. And we are being empowered, educated, and equipped to have those conversations. That if we feel that something is unjust and not truly authentic to who we feel that we are called, either as individual disciples or as the people we know as Methodists, then we will be able to justify why we're not going to do something or why we feel that it is okay to do something else. And as we enter into that, we're going to start today with a good one, that Christians shouldn't have fun. Now, there are clearly churches that don't agree with that. There are other churches that would think this is completely out of line and that we have completely obliterated the concept of solemnity and that we are having too much fun over here. However, we are in tension with what we've heard from both of the Psalms today that we are commanded to do things with great joy and with singing and praise. And it's hard to do great joy, singing and praise and keep it all on the inside. That it really does need to be expressed outwardly. And there are plenty of situations in the scriptures where people were expressing their joy and their thanksgiving and people looking on were like, what is wrong with them? There's something wrong with these people. As if you can have too much fun. Well, yes, there are certainly circumstances where you can have too much fun, especially if it leads you into sinful acts and unleashing evil into your life and the lives of others. Too much of anything can be bad. You can have too much water, too much food, too much exercise. It's hard to get too much Jesus. I have yet to meet anybody that's had too much Jesus. Uh, Hopefully that is never an issue for any of us here. But we are charged as those who have inherited the historical faith from our brothers and sisters in Judaism and down the line of Christianity, we are charged with continuing the good work and the ministry. We are to help to continue to serve in this world and show God's love. And so it is appropriate for us to figure out how to best do that. And different denominations in Christendom have figured out different ways of living out that charge and that truth. So when we hear people say, oh, well, Christians don't have a lot of fun, Now, there are denominations that have certain practices that are not well looked upon. There are practices that people don't think are very good. So growing up, I was a dancer. I did a lot of ballet. I did point, tap, jazz, modern dance, you name it. I did a lot of dancing. Well, my grandfather was a deacon in the Southern Baptist Church, and they didn't do any dancing. And I can remember the first time that we were at... A church event, and my my grandmother was the church treasurer for a long time, not right after Jesus ascended, but thereafter, and she was part of the group that had gathered there for this celebration, 
And I did what all little girls who are going to grow up to be prima ballerinas do. I started dancing. And everybody went, what is she doing? And there was this moment where I think my grandmother would have preferred that I was having an epileptic fit than dancing because my pirouettes seemed to be countercultural. And what we heard, she goes, we, we don't dance here. And I was like, why not? Why don't we dance here? It's a big open space. I got a dress that has like a crinoline on. Why wouldn't I dance here? And she was going, no, we're not going to dance here. And if you don't stop dancing, I'm going to talk to your mama. So I learned very quickly that their culture was that they didn't dance. And I remember saying to my mom, what's wrong with them? Why don't they dance? And my mom said, well, that's just not how they understand it. They understand that dancing can lead to problems. Dancing can lead to problems? What kind of problems are you going to get from dancing? Well, those of you who may remember a movie that came out in the 80s that starred Kevin Bacon called Footloose, well, remember that there was a town that had experienced a tragedy with some of its young persons, and those people ended up getting into a car accident and dying. And as the town was trying to make sense of this, as the town was trying to figure out what they could do to prevent this from ever happening again, they settled on the fact that these young people had been out dancing and perhaps drinking, and that combined, those two things had led to this tragedy. And so they did what a lot of people do. They immediately outlawed dancing and, and drinking in town limits. And the point in the story was that this next generation had come up, and they just wanted to dance. They wanted to explore physical movement with their bodies, and the townspeople were trying to explain to them why they couldn't do this. You can't go dancing. And they're like, it's just dancing. What's the problem? And the problem is that they had a concept of slippery slope. Are you raised with a concept of slippery slope? That if you start doing this, that before long you will slide down this giant chute into a ball pit of sin. And so therefore, we don't want you to take the first step so that you won't fall. And as they did this, and as the town is kind of explaining this concept to the youth who want to have a prom, it becomes very clear that they don't understand the world in the same way. And so they feel, they feel like they have to have this faith conversation because the townspeople were looking at it as if you dance, then people of opposite genders will be getting very close physically, and that's just a couple steps away from fornication, and that's bad. And yet these people understood that we just want to go out and have a good time and feel the music and just express ourselves with some dance. That's all that we're trying to do here. We're not trying to do anything illicit. We're just trying to have some fun. And so the greatest part of this entire movie, to me, is when the daughter of the pastor in the town gives her Bible to her friend, her boyfriend, and shows him the passage where it says that King David danced. And so he uses this to go, dancing is biblical. We should be dancing. King David danced. The whole town's like, King David danced? Like, we didn't know, because they didn't read their Bibles. Also, if they had read their Bibles, they would know in the story that his wife is really angry that he's dancing because he's doing it in his underwear in front of everybody. And that would have been my retort. But anyway, so they're having this conversation about this. And the people go, maybe there is a time. Maybe, Maybe there is a way for us to do certain things. And who decides what is appropriate and what is not? For some of us, it's a personal, individual decision. For some of us, We look to a greater voice. We look to the voice of our denomination, our church, maybe our congregation, sometimes our clergy to help guide and guard us. And so there are churches that that outlaw certain things. Well, I don't know that there's a church necessarily in existence anymore that has outlawed fun, 
But there are churches that, because of their understanding and their doctrine, seem to have curved what modern-day Christians would call fun. And we wonder where that concept came from. Well, if we go back to 1920, when the pilgrims landed on Plymouth Rock here in this country, back when the colonies were just in its most infant stage, they came here and started to establish a place where people could explore their religion and their spirituality outside of the religion of Europe. And it's the monarchies that upheld certain religions over others. Well, about 10 years later, in, in, in 1630, a group of Christians came over called Puritans. And the Puritans came out of England, and they had gotten very excited when we started to have this reformation happening within Christianity. When the Church of England and the Anglican Church came into existence, it produced some reforms from Catholicism. Like all denominations, when they come into existence, they see something that isn't quite right that they hope to fix, and therefore, to use the Methodist phrase, go on to perfection there. So they might look at some other denomination and go, they got close, but I think we can get a little closer. I think we can do this a little bit better. Let's try. And as Anglicanism was being founded and lived out in, the in England through the church, the, Pur the Puritans looked at that and said, we like that you've gotten rid of some of what us liturgical people would call smells and bells. You got rid of some of that. That's great. But they believed that you could still purify even more worship and purify the lives of the people. That's why they're Puritans because they were looking for purification. Well, they were also very affluent people. They had a lot of voice in government, and they had a lot of sway with their financial resources. And so when they came over to this country and, and New England and settled here, they determined that they were going to set up the kind of land where they could live out their faith. And they did this through some legalism. And one of the things that they did was say, we don't want people to fall into sin, so we're going to get rid of some of the things that might help people enter into a life of sin or cause pain and suffering. And so they started to get rid of some of the things like dances. They started to limit when people would be able to drink alcohol, if at all. They started to look and say, you know, some of this ostentatious stuff we do in the church is very distracting. It's not the best stewardship. We, could, we can use money and finances in a different way. And so they started to kind of clear out a lot of the vestiges of Catholicism that had remained even in the Anglican Church. And we see that. Well, it had trickle-down effect. Even though by mid-1700s, the Puritans in, their, in that form ceased to exist, their thought process and their cultural influence can still be seen in other denominations that were founded here in the United States. There's a strong correlation between them and the Baptist Church and a lot of the thought process there. That's not a judgment of good or bad. It's just to say that we can recognize that they had lasting influence. It's hard to believe that some immigrants from Britain back in 1630 could actually make people in, in 2019 still think that we can't have fun. But it's true. That's how powerful cultural influence is. But here's the really interesting thing. If you were able to go back there and talk to some of the Puritan leaders like Jonathan Edwards, sinners in a hand of an angry God, you would find out that what actually happens is that they are leaving out Judaism. It's a very Judaic and Jewish thing that they did to create safe space so that people wouldn't risk committing sin, that if you remove some of the temptation, that therefore they wouldn't commit sin. We go back in the scriptures and we find this repeatedly. So when the Jews and their predecessors, the religion of the ancient Israelites, were looking at the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, where all 613 commandments are listed, they said to ourselves, let's see what we can do so that we won't break God's commandments. God was gracious enough to give us God's law and tell us how to fix it when we break it and we need to be reconciled to God and one another. But maybe we can create safe space 
safe zones so that people won't even break it. We'll, we'll just create a little bit of a buffer, a buffer zone. In Judaism, it's called putting a fence around the Torah, that you can't get in and break something if you can't get past the fence. You can actually see a little bit of this liturgically, can't you? And a lot of older churches, there won't be this break here in the altar rail. It'll actually be solid with a gate so that nobody could get up here and wreak havoc in the chancel. So what we end up finding out is that they would look for ways in which you could help people not sin. One of those examples is that if you know uh, Orthodox Jews or you've been around the Hasidim, that you will find that they do not speak the name of God because one of our top commandments is you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. You don't want to use God's name as an expletive. You don't want to use God's name in exclamation and, and not be honoring God. So therefore, you don't say the name of God. Therefore, you can't use it wrong. If you don't use it at all, you can't use it wrong. So if you'll check their writings, you'll see that sometimes they will write capital G with a dash and a D. They won't actually write the word God. Therefore, you can't malign God's name. And they won't speak the name. So they will use other forms of this. This is why we get such words like El Shaddai. And you get words like Adonai and, and these words in Hebrew that point to God but don't actually use God's name so that they have created safe space. Well, they didn't invent that. In fact, it's biblical. If you go all the way back to the second creation story, the one that we didn't teach the kids last week, if we go back there, we find that God creates Adam, the first man in this story, and says to Adam, I've created all these amazing plants for you. I don't know if you know this, but Adam's a vegetarian. He created all these amazing plants for you, and there's this big tree here, and it's the and its fruit is the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and I don't want you to eat it. Don't eat it, because if you eat it, you're going to die. And Adam goes, got it. The story continues, and a little bit later, after many attempts to find the right companion for Adam, God creates Eve. Well, nowhere in the story does God reiterate to Eve the commandment to Adam not to eat from this tree. So a little while later in that story, we get to the part most people enjoy where Eve has a conversation with a serpent. And when Eve has the conversation with the serpent, the serpent says, did God tell you that you can't eat of something in the garden? And Eve goes, yeah, this tree here. I can't eat from this tree. In fact, I can't even touch it. And if we were following the story, we would go, what does she mean she can't touch it? God didn't say she couldn't touch it. And how does she know anyway? Because God hadn't talked to her in the story. But if we go back, what's missing from the text is that clearly Adam and Eve have had a conversation. And Adam has conveyed to her the commandment. We are not to eat from this tree. But you can't eat from the tree if you can't touch it. You can't get some of that tree essence on you and accidentally get it in your mouth. Or, I mean, how many people do you know that you've touched something and then you rub your eye and you're like, oh my gosh, right? You can't do that because you can't touch it. And so Adam actually is the first person to invent creating safe space, creating a buffer zone. Well, it doesn't work anyway because they both eat of the tree even though they're not supposed to. But that's a whole different sermon. Today we're going to focus on fun. One of the important things for us to remember is that God wants us to outwardly celebrate our blessings. It's important for God to, to create a safe space for us to revel in the presence of God, to allow us to celebrate all the things of Psalm 100. And Psalm 100 has some really important theology in it. It says that all of the earth, all of creation, not just people, not just Jews, not just Christians, but all people should make a joyful noise for the glory of God. 
that we should worship God with gladness. Yes, there is a time for solemnity. Yes, there is a time for us to contemplate in silence. There is a time for us to mourn, to explore the fullness of human emotions, even those negative emotions like anger, but that we should never forsake worshiping the Lord with gladness and that we should come into his presence with singing. That's been a huge part of Christendom, and United Methodism has carried that on. We are a people who sing our faith. We usually open worship with singing, and we will close worship with singing. And if people don't complain, then we will add singing in the middle, because we believe that that is part of who we are called to be as Methodists. And the psalm goes on to say that we should know that the Lord is God, that God made us, and we belong to God. We are God's people. And the metaphor is the sheep of God's pasture. In that simple phrasing, the scriptures are telling us that God has created us, that we are wanted, that we are desired, that God claims us as God's own. And even more than that, just as the good shepherd takes care of the sheep and provides a safe pasture where they can eat and thrive, God promises to do that to us. And not just some of us, all the earth. All of us are promised this gift. So therefore, because of that truth, because God knows us and claims us and loves us and cares for us, we should enter his gates and his courts with thanksgiving and praise. Those were the open areas of the tabernacle and later the temple, that we should come into our worship space with praise and thanksgiving. Now, I have been to other churches, not Methodist churches, but I have been to other churches where there's a sign on the door that's like silence from here on in, right? And then you come into our church and we're like, hey, how are you? Right? We obviously don't have that sign because we have just a different understanding of how we enter into worship. We greet one another. We have a, a place in all of our worship services where we connect with those people that have gathered to manifest the body of Christ with us. And we tend to do that with joy. Sometimes I'll stand here being like, y'all done? Because you're having a good time talking to each other, greeting one another. And, you know, and then you get people who are so joyful about it, they like, transverse the aisle and they're like over there and you're like come back to your seat eventually you know because it is a joyful thing to greet one another in the name of Jesus Christ we recognize that joy and that can be fun and sometimes when we're having fun we're not paying attention to the clock we're having a good time we are enjoying the gift that God has given us in one another and so we see that but there are denominations that, that emphasize more the solemnity, the quiet, the somber aspects of worship. If that's what you want, that's probably not going to be you. It's probably not going to be here. However, we do recognize even here in Crozet United Methodist Church that there is a time for us to do that. If you've come to an Ash Wednesday service, you know that there is some solemnity to that. And their Good Friday service, we leave in silence, which is really hard for us here. I love it when we're like, please leave in silence. We're like, good night. That's not silence. <laughs> because we're so, you know, we love each other so much. Even the silence, we're like, I got to break the and elephant. And they're like, I'm sorry, but good night. Because we love one another and we have this great joy and we live that out. And we do tend to have fun. The church should be a place where we can have fun. We, we didn't decorate like this so that we could teach the kids that they can't have fun. We didn't do that. The kids had a lot of fun. We had 110 kids in here. A lot of kids. It's a lot of sticky fingers. It's a lot of body energy and ambient noise. But they were having a good time. And every time I would see them, I would go around to the stations and I would visit them. And I'd be like, are you having a good time? And they'd be like, yeah, I'm having a great time. Will you stop talking to me so I can go have fun? I was like, yeah, all right, get back to the fun. Go have fun. 
And then at the end of each day, we would sing whatever song that they had learned in the music part portion of it. And they were singing and dancing, and they had learned dance movements, and there was like syncopation. It was great. They were having a good time. And the best part for me was that Friday night at our closing celebration, something incredible happened. Normally, if you work vacation Bible camp all week, you get to that celebration, and all of us are like, all right, we're just going to bang this out in about 30 minutes, and then we're going to go home in coma in the name of Jesus Christ, right? Mark your watches. But last Friday, something really incredible happened. The kids had learned this song on the closing day of worship, and it's actually a worship song from Bethel Church Live. Their praise band writes music and performs it and then teaches it to their church and other churches so that they can offer it up as a worship offering. And this song was called Deep Cries Out. And it had all kinds of like kitschy little movements to it that Amy David had taught them. And so the kids at the closing of Friday during the day were practicing it together for the first time. It had all these crazy movements. It was like very reminiscent of Footloose because there was this part about like they're stirring it up and they were like this with the hips. They were like, we're stirring it up. And then it was like, if we're going to the left, then we're going to the left, which is my left, not yours. And if we're going to the right, then we're going to the right. And they were like deep cries out and they would yell. And they had such a good time. At the end of it, I, was, I said to them, I was like, did you just learn that today? And they're like, yeah. And I was like, because you nailed it. This is great. And they're like, yeah, we like that one. Okay, great. So the night shows up, and, you know, I go home, and I try to sleep, and I can't sleep, so I had to change my clothes and come back here, and we're all like, yay. And I sit down here on the floor, and we put the risers down here, and there's 75 kids up here. They left the decorations intact. That's pretty big. There's 75 kids up here, and they're all dancing, and they're singing, and they're doing all the movements, and they're having this great time, and they got to that song, and it was so incredible. They were having such a good time. They were embodying the words. They were singing these words as if they were their own words. You know when you have a favorite hymn or church song, and when it's time for us to sing it, and you find it in the bulletin, or it comes up on the screen, you're like, this is my song. I got this. Those were those kids in this song. It was incredible. It was amazing. And I was so entertained watching them. They were having fun. And then I turned around, and if you could get past the sea of cameras, phones, like, filming them. The parents were having fun watching them. It was this great moment. And that's what God's asking for in Psalm 100, that we would have joy and fun and revel in God's blessings. And they did that. And the the last thing I asked them before we dismissed them for the entire summer, I was like, did you have fun? And they're all like, yeah, we had fun. I said, are you going to come back next year and do it again? They're like, yeah. And then, of course, they're like, so when is next year? Tell mom. And what are we doing? I'm like, I have no idea. Like, we just made it through this one. Can I have a nap? And the kids recognize that they can come here and have fun. And what's important is that this is part of who we are as Christians. How many of you felt like when we got to a certain point, people were like, you have to stop having fun now. You're not a kid anymore. You have to be serious. But that's not true. That's not biblical. In fact, when Jesus welcomes the children to him in, in the gospel account of Matthew, the adults are saying, no, 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 kids aren't well. This is, this is not playtime, kids. This is serious. We can't have fun here. You're messing around with Jesus. And Jesus is like, well, hold it, time out. Let him come over here. And you can just picture the kids like climbing all over Jesus and touching him, probably asking if he's got any kind of treat for him because kids are always up to that kind of mess. Ask, what do you have for me? And touching his hair and his sandals. And the adults are like, oh, the impropriety. And yet Jesus looks at all of them and says, you got to become like this. And over the years, we've translated that as we have to have a childlike faith where we don't question or we just accept whatever God tells us. But I don't think that's what Jesus was saying. 
I think Jesus was telling us that we have to celebrate life and enjoy God's blessings and have fun with them. I think that's what God was saying. And so when Jesus says, no, let the kids come, and woe to you if you hinder them. Because when people don't think they can enjoy God's blessings, they really don't want to enjoy God. They really don't want to come and celebrate and have a good time. They really don't want to come and worship and and praise God from whom all blessings flow, but we can't really talk about it. We can't celebrate that. I was a friend came to visit me uh, who works in another church. She came to visit me yesterday, and she was talking about how she had been censured in her church. And I was like, censured for what? What did you do? Did you like preach some unorthodox theology, or did you? What did you do? And she goes, No, my kids were being loud in church. I was like, Oh, really? She said, Yeah. They they apparently they were distracting. I said, Uh huh. She goes, yeah, apparently um, kids can't be loud in church. I was like, oh, yeah. She's like, what? I said, well, for Easter, I gave all the kids tambourines. She's like, in church? I was like, yeah, 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 gave the kids tambourines. And I know that for some of us, that was like, why does Pastor Sarah hate us? I recognize that. But when I see kids and they talk about, do you remember that time you gave us tambourines and you let us play tambourines? Do you remember that time we got to do that thing in the psalm where you got to make a joyful noise? Or do you remember that time that we had the red lip whistler thing and we were like, woo, for the Holy Spirit? Like the kids remember that and they, they look at the church with joy and gladness, which is important because at some point they don't have to come anymore. They can make a decision about whether or not they want to be Christians in this way. And there's a lot more competition now for fun on Sundays. A lot. And yet, time and time again, there are children that choose to come and be here, to have fun in our midst, and to explore and celebrate what God has done for them, as well as what God has done for all of us together. And Vacation Bible Camp reminded me of that, that sometimes you can have fun watching other people have fun. But then the best fun is when you can have fun together. And that's what God wants from us, to have fun. One of the greatest things that I love about weddings is that I get to pick the scripture. I like that. And I like to pick the wedding at Cana because, as we all know, that's one of the first miracles that Jesus performed was transforming this water into wine. Well, what you might not know about it is that we were talking about very large vessels, probably up to here, that held water because they were actually for cleaning hands and feet as people were coming in, kind of mikvah bath. And so as people were coming in and getting purified, they would refill the water jugs and pour them out as needed. So Jesus says when his mother doesn't harass him or nag him, but in her motherly way tells him that he should do this. He says to the servants, fine, go fill up all of those jars over there and then fish some out. And all of a sudden it's wine. Well, if you know the size of those containers, how they typically were, then you can do the math and figure out that Jesus probably made over 120 gallons of wine. Really good wine, according to the text. Jesus didn't make 120 gallons of wine so that people could not have fun. I don't know very many people that could have 120 gallons of wine and not have fun. And so Jesus recognized that there is a time for celebrating and joy. There's a time to to have fun. There's a time to fellowship. And as modern Christians, it's important for us to make sure that we are as attentive to the fun of our faith as we are the faithfulness of it. That we have fun. 
I mean, and it can be that we need to pay attention to, do we have enough fellowship with each other? Are we, are we taking time to make sure that it's not all business, but there's celebration and joy? Do we take time out of meetings to talk about something wonderful that happened to us or a funny story or to share something embarrassing? Are we in- ensuring that even in the midst of mission and ministry that we are laughing and having a good time? Because, yes, there are people that encounter the goodness of mission and ministry work, but if everybody that's helping them is like this, like, wow, I can't wait to be a part of that. They got the love of Jesus somewhere in there. But instead, when we are enlivened and it's embodied and we look like we're having fun, people are like, why are you having so much fun? You're serving people food. Why is that fun? Because God is good. And because we are celebrating all the goodness that God does. God doesn't just feed us. God lets us feed other people. God doesn't just tell us that we are loved, known, and saved. But God lets us tell other people that good news. That's worth smiling and laughing and celebrating and having a little fun. And that's what catches people. That Jesus Christ knew how to have a good time with them. He went to where they were in the midst of the busyness and the dirtiness of their lives. And he had fun with him. That's why people got angry with Jesus, because they thought he should be all somber and stately. And Jesus was hanging out with sinners. And sinners usually know how to have a good time. Amen? And he even says at one point, you know, there's no winning with some of you. You know, some of you, God can't win. Because John the Baptist comes all pious and and somber and not drinking anything because he's living the life of a Nazarite. And you all don't like him. And here I am, and I get accused of being a drunkard, and you don't like me either. So what do you want? And the people don't know. But we do know this, that more people follow Jesus Christ than John the Baptist. More people like a Savior and are willing to bear his name in the world, who was known for going to parties, helping people celebrate, finding joy and fun, tending to their needs, having conversations, investing in them, and not just leading them, but turning around and calling them friends. That's who we serve. We don't serve John the Baptist, and good thing, he had a funky menu that is not good for fellowship and potlucks. (laughs) Instead, we follow a Savior who taught us that there is joy to be had in the Lord. And the most important message that he had for us was that God is with us, that God has chosen us and has not forsaken us. And the closing of Psalm 100 is the most important part. For the Lord is good good. In a world that is filled with bad and apathy, God is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. God's love never runs out. How many times has has someone that you love said to you, I'm like at the end of my limit with you, my rope, I'm at the end of my rope. I have no more to give to you. God never says that. God never says, I have loved you through your teenage years and your 20s, and you're about to run out of my love in your 30s if you don't get your act together. God doesn't say that. God says, I have loved you when everyone else thought you were unlovable. I have loved you when everybody loved you, and I will love you when no one else remembers you. I will still love you. I will love all the generations, not just some of them. There won't come a time where God says, I'm done with these people. God says, for all generations, my love is steadfast. It will not be moved. It shall not be shaken. And no one can take it from you. That is what we celebrate. 
that is a promise that almost no one can claim. That God's love for them will never be taken. It will never run out. It will never fail. It will never need a time out. It will never have to take a vacation. It will never unfriend us on social media. It will never stop coming by at Christmas and Easter. It will always be there for us. Steadfast love for all generations. And if that doesn't make us want to celebrate and sing to the Lord and sing with praises and make a joyful noise, then we are way off base. But instead, there is something within each of us, those of us that recognize that God created all of us in some miraculous way in the divine image that resonates so that when we taught those kids the words of the songs, those words became their words, and their physical expression was embodying the truth that God loves them and that they are God's. And that's what we have to find. That's our struggle. Because we can get so bogged down in the minutia of adulthood that we forget that we are here to have fun. To not only acknowledge God's blessings, but to enjoy them. And to enjoy them with others. For God continually calls us into community. We are called to be with others for others. So that others may be with us and for us as well. What a glorious gospel that is, that we are not alone, that God is with us and God is sending others to be with us, and that because of this gift, everything is worth celebrating. And so, yes, one day when the Lord comes back on that throne and we all get to experience God's grace and the entering into the kingdom to come, I cannot wait to see the look on the Puritan's face. I can't wait. What are you all doing with these tambourines? What is this? We're going to have some fun forever. Ever. Now, who doesn't want a piece of that? So let us focus on some of the good things that God gives to us, that God wants us to enjoy, that God didn't give us sentient bodies so that we could not experience the fullness of creation in life, but instead that we do that with the appropriate maturity that comes with age and education. And that guided by the Holy Spirit, we can truly live out the joy not only of Psalm 150 and 100, but all of the scriptures. For God is good to us all the time. And we are the people of that gospel. May it be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful, and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.